This podcast is brought to you by Close Brothers Asset Management. We've created this podcast to set out possible approaches. Please do not view it as financial advice or its content as investment recommendations. Just because an investment or an investment strategy has performed well in the past does not mean that it will continue to do so. Our predictions are based on information that is currently available. However, events and markets can and do change rapidly. Hello, and welcome to our podcast with me, Tony Winkup. And today, as always, the usual suspects with me here in the studio, Isabel and Robert, how are you doing? Fine, thank you. Good morning. Good Hi. to see you. How have you been? Just, I think, holding up. Still still standing. <laughs> it's been a busy, busy start to the yep. year since we last spoke. Lots going on, uh, policy making, lots going on in the markets. Actually, I've been in Scotland this week, as you both know, with clients. It's been really nice to have my finger on the pulse with what they're thinking and saying, some of which mm. we're going to be talking about today. So good to have you here. In terms of the next sort of 20 minutes or so, we're going to be talking about central banks, particularly the Bank of England. We're going to have a wee chat about what's going on in China because there are some warning signals, it seems, slightly more than the Malays, arguably, right there, right now. And uh, we're going to be picking up on the US elections as well. Uh, so looking forward to what you have to say. But uh, Bank of England first, Isabel. Um, we had the first single vote in favour of a rate cut since March 2020, but the rate stayed unchanged. So what's going on there? Yes, I think, you know, so much of, I, I suppose, the last year, really, we've all been really focused on what's been coming out of the Fed in the US because that matters so much for kind of global markets. But I think this month, the UK was actually the most interesting decision. And as you say, it stayed unchanged. But um, sort of going into this meeting, we'd had a kind of checklist of things we were keeping an eye on. Mm -hmm. And sort of all of those things, you know, something happened. So as you said, um, if you recall before, the bank had actually explicitly had a tightening bias. This time we had everyone sort of moving one notch in a more dovish direction. And as you say, we had the first vote in favour of a cut in a little while. Um, so the kind of change in the voting pattern was one of the things we were keeping an eye on. Another thing was, um, if you recall, you know, we've had a big focus on what's going on with the labour market. Yeah. And we seem to, there seemed to be a bit more confidence from MPC members that the labour market was easing because monetary policy was restrictive. The last thing that I think was probably most interesting, uh, since November, we've had a really pronounced movement in what market-based indicators suggest the market is expecting in terms of interest rates. So, you know, we've, we've seen much more cutting priced in by the market. And the bank actually uses that to calculate its forecasts of where growth and inflation are going to be. So if that forecast said, even if we do all this cutting, um, you know, inflation will be kind of uh, at target or below target, then I think that would have made a pretty strong case that we should expect a reasonable amount of cutting. But what we got was not that. We had inflation above target mm -hmm. um, in the forecast. So I think that gives us a clear message that uh, we've seen this big increase in the amount of cuts expected, and it's too much, according to the bank's models. So that was the key takeaway for us. I know we don't tend to get unanimous decisions in the, in the UK, and there can be a bit of a rowdy bunch, I guess. But that, that one vote, do you think that was 
sort of significant in terms of a direction of travel. I think it was Swati Dingra who said that actually there's some downside risks to the UK economy, hence the decision to, to cut. Yeah, and, you know, we always have a range of views and there's always some members who are going to be a bit more dovish than others. I think it's um, the fact that kind of it wasn't just that, you know, we had one fewer vote in favour of a hike than last time. So we're kind of seeing a gradual move. I think the next kind of key point to look out for, you know, I mentioned the forecast update we had in February. We're going to have another one in May. And I think that will be key. So perhaps from May onward, we start to expect rate cuts more seriously in the UK. Okay, Robert, anything to add there? Rate cuts from May, you don't think that they could happen any sooner? No, I agree with Isabel's analysis. It wasn't a definite change from the stance in the fourth quarter that led to that um, sort of equity market rally. I mean, I know the Fed were involved then as well. All I would point out is that this is therefore going to be the year of an interest rate change, and that is quite obviously serious and far-reaching for asset prices. So, you know, this is going to be quite a special year from that perspective. Does that politicise in any way at all the timing of the next election, independent as the central bankers are? I think, to be honest, um, the current executive have other factors that they're going to be paying more attention to. So I think the fact that Conservatives are currently still really quite far behind in polls mean that you want to delay it for as long as possible in the hope that maybe that situation changes. And to be honest, it probably does change at the margin, but you've got a deadline <laughs> by when you need to do it. Sure, yeah. Um, so, you know, it has to be done um, basically before next year. And I think... Um, generally people like to do it in the summer months but you know for, for the reasons we've discussed mm. it could be pushed I think people are generally expecting in the autumn and summer months because of the turnout presumably. yes exactly yeah I think people prefer going mm. outside in May we've had a few December elections haven't we mm. in the UK a couple one but, in my um, memory one in mine as well but I think yeah. there have been, a, been a couple okay let's switch our attention to the Fed in the US which you know we normally fixate on the last rate increase in the US was seven months ago um, and since then, real economic activity seems to be holding up. Um, you know, why haven't we seen interest rates perhaps slightly higher than they are, given that the economy is so strong? So I think it's definitely true to say that the economy is strong, but I think we've still seen some slowing. Yeah. I think the fact that the economy is still strong is why we've been cautioning against expecting a lot of rate cuts very soon. And the Fed have been cautioning against that as well. So if you recall, um, in December, the Fed sort of acknowledged <laughs> that people were wondering when rates would be cut. And the market suddenly priced in a lot of rate cuts, you know, very quickly. Um, they've basically spent the time since then pushing back on that expectation. And I think the data backs that up because whilst we've seen um, a slowdown in the labour market, if you kind of take a slightly longer term view, and we've seen um, a bit of a softening in most areas of GDP, with the exception of trade, um, you know, it's still strong, the economy is not collapsing. So I don't think that makes um, it justifiable to expect a huge amount of cutting. 
So yeah, I think this, this is kind of the key risk we're keeping an eye on this year, because if we see a repricing of rate expectations, that could have an impact on equity and bond prices. Yeah, I, I agree with Isabel. I think that is now emerging as a key risk. You could have a situation where the US economy is even stronger and rates start falling initially, but then there's a realization that it's the wrong action mm. for what's happening and there'll be a big, big reset both in equities and on the bond side as well. So I think that is emerging um, as a key thing to watch out for and position portfolios to guard against. That seems part of the jeopardy in forward guidance, really. I mean, we're sort of trying to talk ahead. We've got the dot plots. Everyone's trying to work out what will happen. And if a word doesn't appear in the minutes or a testimony, then everyone gets flustered. I mean, as you said, Robert, markets went off to the races last December mm. and then we had a hold in January and everyone sort of scratching their heads and thinking, well, things, you know, just might not happen quite as we anticipated. Do you think forward guidance helps you in trying to navigate the markets, Robert? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I think... Really? The most, the, the it, most, perhaps it's just me. It, well, <laughs> I, I think it, you're reading a sort of language, aren't you? A code almost from whoever's giving it, whether it's... Um, Jerome Powell in terms of the Fed or uh, chief executive of a company that we may have an investment in. I think it's all part of the sort of rich tapestry of investment, basically. I think another key thing to remember is, thankfully, we do still have actual data to look at. So, yeah. um, you know, forward guidance, forward guidance is important, but I think what we can hold on to when it all feels a bit like you're sort of a soothsayer, um, you know, trying to find a message, um, is that we do have real data and you can see how that evolves. So I think that's kind of the, the firmest basis. Yeah, basically through swaps pricing, you can see what the market is actually placing real money on in terms of interest rate um, profiles, both, sure, in, yeah. both in the US, Europe, UK, Japan. So yeah, okay. and um, we look at that, obviously. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, the ECB held as well. Anything of particular interest there? I mean, Germany's <coughs> been recessionary the periphery seems to be doing quite well any points to pick up on Isabel so I think the ECB was actually a bit of a surprise for people yeah because as elsewhere we've had the ECB really pushing back on rate, rate cut expectations um and that sort of I don't know they went a bit quiet on us this meeting so I think that's kind of led people to expect that they might act sooner rather than later. But as you say, um, you know, forward guidance is a murky game. It's best to look at what's actually happening in the data outturn. Um, you know, overall in Europe, we expect slightly better growth this year, partly because it was really quite soft last year. Um, mm -hmm. And hopefully the sort of inventory destocking cycle that we've seen that's really weighed on global manufacturing, hopefully that might begin to sort of fade a little bit and that provides a bit more support for Europe. We had some central bank activity in China as well. We're going to talk a bit more broadly about China now. They cut their reserve ratio requirement by 50 basis points, which is essentially release some liquidity, about a trillion yuan or about 140 billion US dollars in base money liquidity into the economy. Do you think that, that speaks to a, a broader malaise in the economy, the crisis of confidence potentially that we're seeing there now? I mean, the China stock market is down year to date. Massively. So, yeah. So it's clear that market participants think that what's been done is nothing like enough. And given what we've heard from Evergrande and what that's been rolling on now for two years in terms of 
property defaults and overinvestment, bad loans. So I was talking to a fund manager and we, we both thought that this is one of the longest running Chinese um, downturns that we can both recall. So we're quite surprised that not more the so-called big bazooka hasn't been played by the Chinese authorities. Perhaps they're waiting till after um, the lunar year holidays, but it, it's clear that the economic growth isn't going to be enough to get them out of this. But Isabel, what do I, you think? I think my concern is, I think that big bazooka isn't coming. <laughs> it's uh, been spoken about for a long time. Yeah. The numbers north of two and a half trillion, and it hasn't happened. That's probably undermined confidence, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we've had quite a lot of easing in different forms. Mm -hmm. The current favourite policy tool seems to be debt swaps. So I think the key thing to, to, in my opinion, understand is that obviously Chinese leadership, they're trying to um, sustain growth, but they're also really focused on minimising financial risks. Mm -hmm. And that's why swapping out local government equity and financing that centrally that is the thing that they're much keener to do because you know they're already a bit nervous about the degree of a property bubble. So there's not really an appetite to sort of worsen <laughs> that situation. Yeah. But it's hard to stimulate growth and to um, improve confidence on that. I think what people, well, economists would like to see is measures that will boost consumer confidence. So especially measures that could strengthen the social safety net. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talk about Evergrande and it is, you know, a massive company, $300 billion of liabilities, mm. but it's just one of many property developers in China that's going to be suffering. And that's really getting to the heart, I think, of um, what some individuals are feeling in the economy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's got, what, 1,300 projects and over 250 Incredible numbers, cities, aren't they? Which yeah. are incredible numbers yeah. by any economies. And so, yeah, it's crucial about how exactly the central bank sort of deals with the situation. Um, I'm, by the way, I'm still of the belief that there is going to be the big, the I think big they're bazooka. Gonna, they're going to be forced into, into delivering that. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. see. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we look longer out, I mean, you've got Trump's come out and said that he may raise Ooh. tariffs on Chinese exports to 60%. I guess that's slightly concerning depending on where you stand. The EU is considering tariffs on... EVs, as we know, uh, so it may get harder for China to export to some of its key markets. So the, you're right, the, the equity market's off about 6% year to date, but there has been a wee jump in the last couple of days with the appointment of a new regulator there. Um, but it, it seems like it might just be a temporary bounce and there's some sort of longer term issues to play out. Yeah, I think another thing that will become more of a challenge in time is last year, there was a real tightening of restrictions on access to US tech. And I think before, you know, there were these restrictions, but chip makers, for example, could make their gold star chip and then a slightly worse one, yeah. and they were able to get that to China. I think those restrictions now would prohibit that. And in time, that gap is going to emerge and it will become more of a challenge. Okay. Well, let's sort of, I guess the US-China rivalry is, is, is part of a, a, a broader story as well that we need to, to think about. If we think about the US election in particular, uh, the economy's strong um, and it looks like we're going to have Biden-Trump almost 
Certainly. But Biden's so far behind in the polls. I mean, according to what I'm reading this morning, three percentage points behind if, if the election were to happen today. Why is he so far behind when the economy is so strong? I mean, I think it's even worse than that because we're speaking on the day when Biden's memory lapses. I'd forgotten. You forgotten. <laughs> very good. Very, I mean, it's a day good. to forget or to, I mean, it's just terrible, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah. just a gift, isn't yeah, it, to absolutely. the Trump um, campaign. So I think the answer to your question is that real wages and people in the traditional Trump states just haven't felt that the last four years have improved their economic lot. Mm. Either. Um, and these are people who aren't necessarily involved in stock markets. So, you know, they haven't seen either their balance sheet or their cash flow improve enough, essentially. And, and I think that's the real um, essence here. Plus, perhaps you could say lack of economic vision. Um, yeah, that, I think that's the answer to why. The, but, but I'd be very worried if I was on the Biden campaign because, you know, you've got low gasoline prices, you've got real wage growth. What you more could you do? <laughs> what more? You've got uh, economic yeah, growth, absolutely. as Isabel said, picking up third and fourth quarter. You've got everything. What else is there left? Yeah. And it's just going to be a, yeah, incredible to watch it play out, isn't it? But um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I've just been reading it's the seventh rematch, it potentially assuming that Trump, you know, is the one that goes up against Biden in U.S. election history. The last ones we had was Eisenhower and Stevenson in 1952 and 56. It's not something that happens every day, but the two certainly have each other's measures. So it will yeah. be, be good to see what happens. What are some of the key election risks? And I know this is going to... We're going to touch on this in the months ahead. Stuff's going to filter filter through in terms of the analysis. But what are the, the key things we're watching at the moment? We've already mentioned China. I'd wager that, apart from what Trump's just said, they've both got pretty similar stances on China as mm. the kind of bogeyman, as it were. Well, and yes, you know, as those tech curbs last year demonstrate, it's not controversial to be hawkish on China. Mm -hmm. um, I think the key sectors to think about are going to be financials because there's potentially the prospect of greater deregulation, energy as well, but maybe not in the way you would think because there's also the prospect of greater deregulation for energy, but that could just mean you have more output and that's not actually necessarily positive for prices. Uh, also potentially implications on healthcare in terms of spending um, and you know, thinking much more broadly and going back to trade, well, there has been some discussion of a blanket tariff. So, you know, what impact does that have, both in terms of global activity, but also um, nearshoring, friendshoring, things like that? You mean for the rest of the world outside yes, of China? Exactly. I think it's a flat 10% tariff, isn't it, that's yeah. been been touted? Yeah, I mean, some of that seems bad for some of the Inflation Reduction Act, yeah. that sort of new Green Deal economy stuff, electric vehicles, for example. Yeah, I think a lot of that will probably get reversed. I don't yeah. think electric vehicle, either manufacturers or the supply chain, it's good news if Trump gets invested. Same with renewable energy, actually. It's going to be the traditional fossil fuel production um, uh, shares that rally on the back of a Trump victory. I have to say, though, I'm a bit bored by the Trump, the, the prospect of Trump winning, because we've had Trump <laughs> won. We've had Trump won. So I don't think there's a lot different. You just have to literally go back to your notes. You've got the playbook. Of old, yeah. yeah. And, and think, oh, well, this is what's happened. Back then, it was brand new for the first time. 
but there's nothing I've really heard so far that makes me sit and think, oh, that's, that's different. <laughs> so I, th- I'm, I think I'm, you're right. Yeah, I think it's just so. going to be the same, but dialed up a couple of notches. I think the volume is just going to get a bit, a bit louder because the stakes will be higher to a, to a man that lost. Exactly. Last time yeah. round. So, exactly. Um, the only other dif- the only other difference is that um, Isabel and I heard some commentators suggesting that it wasn't going to be easy to withdraw from NATO by the US. Absolutely. That that's yeah. been written into legislation. You need a very large majority to reverse that. So perhaps that's the one thing that was touted before. But you know, the Ukraine Russian um, conflict will be ended within days. I think if Trump does get in. That's a really interesting thought, actually, isn't it? And we've got Olaf Schultz in Washington today, actually speaking to, to Biden about those very things. So that's something I think we'll come back to, won't we, in the, in the months ahead. Um, but as always now, we're just about running out of time. So as is standard on these podcasts, one of us surprises. And last time round, I think I totally <laughs> blindsided you both with my number. So this time, Isabel, you've, um, you've dragged up a number from somewhere that's relevant, I think, to our lives in some way, and Robert what? and I have to guess I've got what it is. a seasonal fact. In fact, I have a choice of seasonal Seasonal facts. in February. Yes. Go on, go for so, it. So, would you like to have a guess <laughs> on a fact relating to Valentine's Day or Pancake Day? Oh, gosh, Robert, you go for it. I'll go, go for Valentine's, Valentine's Day. Oh, it says romantic. Okay. There you go. Would you like to have a guess at how many cards are sent in the UK Annually. Valentine's Day's cards, obviously. Valentine's Day cards. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's the analyst in you coming out there, Robert. Million people say 30, 30 million. And what's your guess? I'm going to go much lower than that. Um, I'm going to say something in the order of 2 million. Oh, okay. Um, well, I, s- I found on the internet, very scientifically, a number of 25 million. I think. Oh, Robert! Don't, don't, don't. <laughs> you wouldn't have seen him thrust his <laughs> fist into the air there. I you think know. the true answer is probably slightly lower than that because that is that assumes that sixty um, percent of the total population are partnered, and that sixty percent of those people participate in sending a card or doing something like that. And does it include the one you're sending to me and Robert as well? <laughs> so I think the true answer is probably slightly <laughs> below 25. But um, I think Robert certainly was a bit closer there. So well done. Well, he's an analyst and he's obviously romantic. So he trumped me on both grounds. That's really good. Thanks, Isabel, yes. for, for that. Great really fact. good. to Great fact, wasn't it? Uh, great to speak to you both. I look forward to catching up again in about a month's time. But until then, uh, go well and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye bye.